0: Let's go be logical Christians. Do you ever just stop, kind of shut everything off, remove the distractions, and reflect on the past for a minute? As I get older, I find it amazing how much things have changed in my lifetime. Some of those are for the good, and some are more recent history. (laughs) No, even good changes have happened in the last few years. can't really think of anything right off the bat, but I'm sure I'm right? Right? One change we've seen over the last few years is that things that always were definitely aren't what they are, unless in fact they are, in which case they might be what they were or are, or aren't. But bottom line is that they aren't what we think they are. That's what they were. Now they're what we're told they are. So with that in mind, on today's episode, we're going to trample each other to get to the most world-changing things since the segue. Then we'll be told that even if you aren't... <laughs> Oh, you are, and then we'll see how doing the right things for the right reasons without the right motivation will end up being wrong. So, warm up your favorite credit card, stop living in denial, and figure out your reasons why, because there we went, and here we are, and here we go. You know how when you buy electronic things these days, a lot of times they're now coming with not only the normal plug to plug it into a normal wall, but all those other crazy... adaptable configurations of prongs and posts and who knows what else that get plugged into something in foreign countries. And if you're from a country other than the United States, and there are a few listeners, my apologies for trivializing your clearly inferior plug options. This doesn't happen with everything, but there are a good number of items that come with every type of plug style, just in case you're a world traveler and you need to... I don't know, charge your drill battery in Asia somewhere for some reason, for example. So, although most of us Americans who are clearly suffering from plug arrogance just throw those other whatchamacallits and doodads either in a drawer or directly in the garbage, the reality is for a certain percentage of people, those are very handy and including them with the product is much appreciated. Well, enter the Juice Booster. I mean, how cool does that sound, right? But it's for electric cars. Speaking for myself, how skeptical does that make you? Found on Forbes.com headline, A Portable EV Charger Aims to Reduce Range Anxiety. So this article is covering a device from Juice Technology AG, called the Juice Booster. That's the version made for North America by their U.S. subsidiary, Juice Americas Inc. This is basically a two-pound cylinder of magical technology with cables out of either end. So reading the headline, and maybe this is simply due to my lack of electric vehicle knowledge, it sounds like this is a portable charger, like... The type that I have to charge my cell phone when I can't find a plug to plug it into. But listen to the headline one more time. Isn't that what it sounds like? Portable EV charger aims to reduce range anxiety. Now, this sounds wonderful, as I'm not necessarily anti-electric vehicle. I'm anti-EV based on the range and unacceptably excessive charge time Plus, I'll be honest, the rumble of an engine, the winding to redline between shifts, it's really hard to beat that feeling, even if you can't beat the acceleration of an EV. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. If a company can make a portable charger that you can simply plug in and charge the battery on the go, that's awesome. Now, when I look at the Juice Booster, I instantly have to wonder what exactly this thing is based on the size of the cylinder and the size of the battery packs for the electric vehicles, knowing that battery storage technology isn't capable of making a two-pound cylinder, magical or not, capable of charging an EV. So I had to do some digging. So first off, I'll hand it to this company, Juice Technology AG, They're working to create usable things for the world of EV drivers. But I have to ask Forbes and other outlets. Take Yahoo, for instance, with their headline, Juice America's Launches J Plus Booster 2 Portable EV Charger in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. I've got to know, why can't you just write an honest headline? A straightforward article that actually says what this is? We know that there are virtually no limits to the number of words that can be used in headlines of articles, so why not write an honest headline? For instance, an honest headline for Forbes would be something like, Portable EV Charger Adapter aims to reduce range anxiety by allowing drivers to plug in virtually anywhere. Yeah, see... I get that EV owners need to plan trips and stops based on charging capability, especially on long trips or trips that keep them away from their charger at home. That is literally one of the main things I don't like about EVs. It's The charging networks are basically non-existent, especially when compared to gas and diesel networks for regular internal combustion engines. Of course, then you get into the issues I've spoken of previously about What happens if we were actually to make enough chargers and push the majority of the population to the EV world and how that's not really the end goal. The end goal is to make it so that less of us drive, we're more reliant on public government-provided transport and shrinking our world into sectors so we're more controllable. But as I tend to do, I digress. So back to the point, I get that EV drivers need to be able to plug in and charge pretty much everywhere they go as their range is... uh, Okay, at best. So this little tool is actually very clever in its own right and definitely serves a purpose. Basically, when you purchase the juice booster, you get a case with the magic cylinder that has a plug that plugs into your car on one end of one cable and a socket that you can clip in one of many types of adapters that can go to many of the various kinds of electrical outlets you'll encounter in the free North American world. When you get to where you're going, you figure out what type of outlet you have available. Click it onto the cylinder, plug it into the outlet, plug the other end into the car, and charge away. The magic of the cylinder is that it will sense the incoming electrical specs and adjust the output to get the maximum charging capability to the car for what it's working with. It has a number of features to show faults and charging status, etc., but the reality is... This is simply just a smart, and a very smart, but a smart adapter. Now the Forbes article says as their very first sentence, which is also their very first paragraph, quote, it's not exactly the same as carrying a spare can of gasoline, but for a battery electric vehicle, it's about the closest thing to it, and could allay range anxiety concerns for those worried about running out of juice on long trips. Okay, so no. It's not like a can of gas. It's, it's not even close to a can of gas. It's nothing like a can of gas. It's like a series of funnels that will take any gas nozzle and funnel the gas into your car at the most efficient rate possible. Except for the fact that you know that if you're somewhere that has electricity, you could potentially plug in. This does nothing to allay range anxiety. Not in my opinion. I still need a place to plug this adapter into. As much as everyone seems to think that electricity is just, I don't know, free, and we can just all use communal electricity anywhere and everywhere, that's simply not reality. You roll up and try to plug in at my house, we're going to have a conversation. But the CEO of Juice doesn't necessarily agree, or live in what I would like to call reality, as he says, quote, After all, electricity is available everywhere. You just have to make it accessible. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, the electrical grid goes pretty much everywhere across the even somewhat industrialized world. And yes, an adapter can get electricity from point A to point B, but you have to have a point A available to start with, and point A's aren't just everywhere, and that's the problem. The rest of the article pretty much goes on to tout the genius behind the adapter, but the reality is this does nothing to allay range anxiety. Or more accurately, and maybe this is the case where it may be a good idea to change the wording, I don't have range anxiety. I don't think most people have range anxiety. I have full confidence that I can go tens upon tens of thousands of miles in just about any EV out there. What I and most of us actually have is what I would call range over time anxiety. If I want to go, say, 835 miles to my parents' house, I can currently do that in about 13 hours, give or take a little based on traffic. If I'm now in an electric vehicle and I have to add in a few stops, those stops are really only to add about maybe two-thirds of the total battery capacity. That's the standard 15% to 80% charge in the give-or-take 45-minute time frame that's always talked about. Looking at the availability of chargers, I'm adding a couple hours on to my trip. Now, you may guffaw or possibly harumph at that, but that's a lot to me. That's about 15% addition of time to my trip. Time that I don't need to spend. It's only being spent because we, and huge air quotes around that, must save the planet from global heat death. And I've done many, and undoubtedly will do more, reviews on that unscientific, and I would say unbiblical, foolishness. So that's one and a half to two hours per trip for me, so three to four hours per visit, which again, isn't a massive amount of time. But why am I wasting my time when I literally don't have to. So using this adapter doesn't actually charge anything faster or better. It just adapts. So if you have a 50 kilowatt hour battery, which is half the size of a Tesla Model S long range, but this is the info they give in the article, you can charge from flat to full in about 26 hours if you're using a 120 volt 15 amp circuit, which is your typical house receptacle. That equates to about 5 to 7 miles of range per hour of charging. Or you can go from flat to full in about 4 hours if you have a 240 volt 50 amp outlet, which is more along the line of an electric water heater or electric oven outlet, which is about 40 miles of range per hour of charging. And although I'm not positive, I would guess that you double that charging time if you have a double-sized battery, like in the Tesla. As for the charging rate for comparison, from what I can find, it appears that for the highest-rated V3 supercharger, they're utilizing a 300-amp service at 277 volts, or much, much more than you'd ever have at your house, as the largest Tesla home charger runs off of a 60-amp breaker. Okay. I know, enough with the numbers and math. I'm just trying to point out that this adapter doesn't really buy you anything in terms of range over time anxiety or even range anxiety. It just gives you the ability to plug into a variety of receptacles and charge your car, which is nice, I guess. Now, from here, I could go down a variety of paths with this one, but what caught me was the headline and then a fair amount of time spent to figure out what exactly I was looking at and then coming to the realization, or the confirmation of my suspicion, that this was not what the headline made it sound like. Truth be told, I wasn't even looking at this article to review on the podcast. It just caught my eye as I scrolled through you know, my normal news feed, but when I finally figured out what this was, (laughs) well, here we are. So why would Forbes, Yahoo, and others write an article about an adapter that's honestly a a really good idea, appears to be well-made and well-thought-out, and make it sound like it's a range extender or a portable battery or whatever. The answer is agenda. Now, hopefully by this point in my podcast, quickly approaching its one-year-old birthday, you're seeing that the news, and this applies to the right and the left, is all written with agenda. The editors and writers know that in general we're not reading the articles, especially online, and yes, I'm as guilty as you are, and oh, man, wow, are you guilty, we're just stopping at the headline or maybe the first few sentences with regard to the Forbes article. If we stopped at the first paragraph, what we would get is a headline of portable EV charger aims to reduce range anxiety. It's not exactly the same as carrying a spare can of gasoline, but for a battery electric vehicle, it's about the closest thing to it and could allay range anxiety concerns for those worried about running out of juice on long trips. The Yahoo article isn't much better. Headline of Juice America's Launches J-Plus Booster 2 Portable EV Charger in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. The byline being, the portable J-Plus Booster 2 EV charging station puts an end to anxiety about electric vehicle range. Now, From there, the average reader, if they had any trepidation about electric vehicles because of range between charges... Well, this is the answer, problem solved. But the problem isn't solved, it's, it's just adapted. The range between chargers and the charge time is still dependent on these same factors and will take the same amount of time as it always does. Truth in the media, like truth in advertising, just like truth in general, is relative, subjective, and mostly non-existent at this point. So why can't we just be honest? Wouldn't it be nice if the media if advertisers, and if people could just be honest. If we tell what we believe to be the truth and the truth doesn't get the desire to result from the population at large or from the person you're talking to, maybe what we're saying is a bad idea or is hard to hear but accurate, or maybe it isn't the truth. If you were told the truth about electric vehicles in relation to the charging time, the available charging network, the realistic range, the cost of repair and replacement, The non-existent resale value, the climate impact of mining the materials, manufacturing the vehicle, charging the vehicle, and disposing of the vehicle, as well as the almost zero impact of all of these efforts, if actually followed as desired, to the climate, based on even the most optimistic models, would people be clamoring for a brand new $50,000 plus EV? Probably not. If the right-leaning or right-wing news told you the truth about Trump, that he was spending a massive amount of money, that he was and still is, despite all the information and data, pushing the COVID so-called vaccine, would you still be on that train? If the corporate media were to tell you the truth about the lengths being taken to keep President Bumble somewhat conscious and coherent about what all his spending is really going to do, about what all these green initiatives will really accomplish, would those on the left still adore him? If we were told the medical, scientific truth of what an abortion really is, murder, cold-blooded murder of a human being, would people still be so gung-ho about making it legal? In all these cases, the answer is, for a percentage of the population, yes, the truth wouldn't matter. But I'd like to think that for most of the populace, we would evaluate the factual, data-based, information, and make decisions more closely aligned to each other. I'd like to think that if all the information were laid out truthfully, in general, we're all not that different after all. I'd like to think that. Unfortunately, we'll likely never know for sure. Obfuscating the truth has been going on since sometime shortly after the creation. The serpent told Eve that she wouldn't die if she ate the fruit. If Satan actually told her who he was, what would happen to the best of his knowledge, whatever that was, if she ate the fruit? Would she have eaten it? What would have happened to Abraham and Sarah if he had told the truth to either Pharaoh or again to Abimelech that Sarah was his wife? Would he have been killed like he thought? If Abraham had been honest, would Isaac have lied about his wife Rebekah to another king of Gerar, also named or titled Abimelech? What if he had been honest? If both Abraham and Isaac had stories of their lives where they had been honest in times that could have cost them their lives? Would Jacob had lied to his father Isaac about him being Esau in order to get the blessing? Skipping to, I think, the last prominent liar or liars in the Bible, what if Ananias and, well, or maybe or Sapphira had been honest about what they kept, and what they held back from the early church, knowing that they were under no compulsion to give everything or anything. Jesus told the Pharisees, as recorded in John 8, that their father is the devil, a murderer, a being with no truth in him, not only a liar, but the father of lies. We see in the Ten Commandments that thou shalt not lie is the ninth of the ten. As I've mentioned in a previous episode, you can remember the last five of the commandments in reverse order by thinking of David and Bathsheba. First, he coveted her, something, or in this case, someone, that wasn't his. He then lied to himself, telling himself that he deserved her, that it would be fine, that nobody would know. Then he stole her away from her husband, Uriah. I'm not saying she wasn't willing, but he was in control of the situation. Then he committed adultery through lust and deed. Then he killed Uriah to cover up his deeds. You can see the progression of desire to sin, lying being one of those sins, which is what we're warned about in James 1. We're tempted when we're lured by our own desire, and desire gives birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. So what about Rahab's lie, or the midwives lying about the Jewish babies? Well, As I've done before, I'll recommend an excellent lesson from R.C. Sproul on Rahab's lie. See the link in the notes. All that said, although we, speaking of Christians, would love to have the world abide, at least generally, by the principles set up in the Bible, it's completely unrealistic. The unsaved world is going to act, shocker, like the unsaved world. Although all mankind is made in the image of God, the unsaved masses are children of the devil, just as the Pharisees were. That means that Lies will be a feature of our world. As Mark Twain popularized, there are lies, damned lies, and statistics. And if you look at the world we live in, this saying is very, very apt. That simply means that we must be diligent. That's what I'm hoping I'm helping to cultivate in you. The desire to ask why, to question what is being claimed as fact, to verify, not just accept, what's being claimed as truth. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't give us a specific guide to discern the exact truth of every situation or claim, although studying the Bible and a life of prayer will help to develop better discernment. We can't look to the sky for a green or red heavenly light to tell us if what we're being told is truth or lie. So we must be diligent, and we must be cautious, and I would say we must be skeptical. The days of turning on the news where we're given the unbiased facts is gone if it was ever there to begin with. We must ask ourselves if what we're hearing makes sense, and then we must not be afraid to ask questions, do our research, and stand up for the truth if the truth is not being told. Unfortunately, this is not always comfortable or easy or popular, but if we, as Christians, can't or won't discern, stand up for and tell the truth, who will? Travel with me, if you will, to a simpler time. A time when people smiled at each other with their actual mouths, not only their eyes. A time when hands were shaken rather than elbows bumping. A time where a person could sneeze in public and you'd say, Bless you, rather than scream and run in terror, desperately trying to save your life. And a time when if you didn't feel sick, you weren't sick. And if you had a little cold, it was fine, no big deal, it was just the sniffles. For some of you, depending on when you listen to this podcast way into the future, looking back to the early days of the now ultra-famous Rush Limbaugh level of popularity, Logical Christian Podcast, you may not understand anything I just said about mouth-smiling, shake-handing, and sneeze-blessing. Let me reassure you, yes, there was a time when feeling well meant you just wildly assumed that you weren't sick. Those days don't come back again. Found on fox13news.com, this is out of Tampa Bay. Headline, most people infected with COVID-19 Omicron variant didn't know it, study says. So, I just want to ask, right off the bat, like some kind of viral imbecile, yeah, that that means I'm I'm claiming to be an idiot regarding viruses, not an idiot that will infect others and cause them to be idiots as well, although there are likely some that would argue both are true. <clears throat> I digress. I want to ask, if you're sick but don't feel sick, are you really sick? <laughs> Apparently, yes, it seems. A study done by researchers at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in California showed that between 25% and 80% of people infected with COVID-19 showed no symptoms. Now, first, let me point out that that's a 55 percent spread. Can we really call this a study? Really? This is like a roofer giving you an estimate to replace the roof on your house, and it'll cost you between ten dollars and a billion dollars. Regardless, these so-called researchers, I'd argue that point just based on that wild spread, they say that this just adds to the already existing evidence the evidence that's not making an appearance in this article, that, quote, undiagnosed infections can increase transmission of the virus. Well, (laughs) I mean, okay, yeah, if you're sick, you can get others sick. If you don't know you're sick, you can get others sick. So basically they found that a virus works the way that a a virus works. Uh, Okay, well, they probably deserve some grant money. Hey, let's make it rain, Mr. Government. This study analyzed blood samples from 2,479 individuals, a combination of healthcare workers and patients, in the fall of 2021, right before Omicron started. Out of the 2,479, they determined that 210 were likely infected with Omicron based on their antibody levels. Now, I am a scientist, but I am no doctor. Yet, am I wrong in saying that elevated antibodies only indicate that your body is fighting something? How would you determine that based on that level that someone was, and let me quote this once more, quote, likely infected with Omicron? seems like this may be why the flu has disappeared and why people are getting very, very sick these days because they're automatically being diagnosed as COVID rather than the healthcare professionals doing their dang job and actually diagnosing the symptoms. (laughs) Uh, Again, I digress. So out of all the blood samples that they analyzed, 8.5% had elevated antibody levels. Okay, then the, (laughs) quote, researchers interviewed the 8.5%. They found that 44% of the 8.5%, or a grand total of 92 people, said that they knew they had COVID. 10% of that 8.5%, or 21 people, said they had symptoms of a common cold, and 46%, the remaining 97 people, didn't have symptoms. (laughs) and selfishly live their lives like normal animals. Now, from here, you would expect that the author would write something about how good it is that COVID has apparently tapered to the point that most people will never even know they're sick with COVID. At worst, it seems as if it'll just present itself as a minor cold, all the while creating herd immunity, so we really don't need to live in fear anymore. Or you'd think they'd at least toot their own horn about how the vaccine, that's neither safe nor effective, nor a vaccine at all, has saved lives and created herd immunity. Despite the flat earth, moon landing was faked, magical sky god worshipping anti-vaxxers. You'd think that, and you'd be wrong. No, from here we quite logically move into the general population's quote, lack of infection awareness. Remember how we used to walk around so very aware that at any second we could be infected with a virus and or infect someone else with a virus? Well, that's right out the door now. Our awareness has apparently left the building. It's as gone as President Biden's mind. It's dried up like our strategic oil reserves. Get in the drift? To that end, Dr. Susan Chang, the (laughs) deep breath here, Erica J. Glazer, Chair in Women's Cardiovascular Health and Population Science at Cedar sinai <laughs> said, quote, We hope people will read these findings and think, I was just at a gathering where someone tested positive. Or, I just started to feel a little under the weather. Maybe I should get a quick test. The better we understand our own risks, the better we will be at protecting the health of the public as well as ourselves. The article then closes with reminding us that our benevolent overlords, the CDC have relaxed the guidelines for the unwashed masses. No longer do we have to quarantine ourselves if we come in close contact with an infected person, and we no longer need to have our giant hula hoop around our waist to ensure six-foot spacing between ourselves and others. And may I just add, apparently the CDC is just fine with watching the world burn. Now, After tracking this virus for over two years, after reading and listening to massive quantities of information regarding the virus and the so-called vax, after applying logic, reason, common sense, and other words our elected and appointed officials have never heard of, I just have to ask the question, or let me have Stanley from the TV show The Office do it for me. Boy, have you lost your mind, because I'll help you find it. We, as a society, have completely lost touch with reality. To this day, we're still doing some of the dumbest things possible. At the height of this alleged pandemic, we had people in bubble suits walking through the stores. We had people in full-body condoms daring to hug grandma if she wasn't locked in, you know, some nursing home prison that only allowed you to wave at each other through a window. We had people masking, double masking, triple masking, and the infection rate rising and falling despite the masking of a community. Side note... Did you know before COVID, the CDC did 14 studies over 40 years, all pertaining to public masking versus the flu virus, and their conclusion every time was, it's really not gonna, gonna do anything. As an engineer that understands filtration, if you're wearing your mask, do you realize that the holes in that filter, which is all a mask really is, are massive compared to a virus? You do know that the medical masks are made to stop the doctors from breathing bacteria onto a patient, right? You know that a bacteria can be infected by a virus, right? I mean, that's how tiny a virus is. And all masking does is trap stuff you're supposed to exhale away from you so you can suck it deeper into your lungs, making yourself much sicker than you ever would have been in the first place, right? In fact, the quantity of air that you breathe out of your lungs never changes, and the force never really changes, which means when you restrict that air coming out of your lungs through a mask or a filter, you're just projecting what does come through the mask faster and farther, so if a virus does get through, and it will, you spread it farther and wider. Did you know that? Furthermore, not one industrial hygienist who are the masking experts in the world, not the medical community, would ever agree with wearing a mask of any kind and especially not something like an N95 for more than a few hours at a time in an eight-hour period because it's actually dangerous. Finally, if you think your mask protects you from a virus, put it on and go remove some asbestos. If you wouldn't do that, because you'd be afraid of lung cancer from sucking in asbestos fibers, how can you logically think it'll stop a virus? Okay, mask rant done, but do you realize that just a few days ago, a school teacher in California called the cops on a four-year-old because he wouldn't wear his mask? Uh, In fact, I just watched a Cubs game where a child, probably four or five years old, had an N95 mask securely strapped to his face, standing in an open ball field, waiting to get an autograph from one of his favorite players, and it makes me want to have a very frank conversation with Dad, who should be way smarter and way more informed than to damage his not-at-risk, in the least, child like that. Do you realize that there are still hospitals that are barring children or parents from seeing their loved ones who are sick or dying because of this irrational fear of a virus? Can you see that there are people in positions of power that are psychologically abusing the population? The virus and the pandemic were a real thing, regardless of where it came from. It was real. The panic that came with it was totally manufactured. And the leaders that are tending to your safety are the ones that are abusing you. It's gross and sick, to be honest. And now, as they see their grip on the population slipping, they're telling you that if you're not feeling sick, you may infect someone else and cause them to not feel sick also. And that's why you should mask up and test, test, test. Does that make sense? There are those that have found their sense of purpose in this virus, and unfortunately that means they need you to be sick, and if not sick, to be scared of being sick. Because if that ends well, they're like that imaginary friend that's just no longer needed. They just fade into nothingness, and they can't have that. As for the rapid tests, all you have to do is be able to use a search engine. I'd recommend something like DuckDuckGo. Back in August 2021, studies showed that at-home rapid tests were about 79% accurate. (laughs) That's not good. A few months later, in November of 2021, studies were showing that they were testing at a whopping 72% accurate. Somehow that seems, I don't know, worse. A few days ago, we're getting claims of 80% accuracy. That seems almost as bad as the first number I gave. And we're now being told that we should really have three negative tests spaced about 48 hours apart to really say that we're no longer infected. Is any of this making any sense? Because as an engineer who likes math, Ain't nothing been adding up for about two and a half years now. And when I do get things to sum up correctly, it's nothing, nothing good. I've covered fear a few times in this podcast, as the real pandemic, the most dangerous pandemic that we've been dealing with is, in fact, fear. I'm not planning on covering that again, beyond the fact that fear can be good or bad. God has given us a sense of fear to be used correctly. The snarling dog, the dangerous looking character coming at us, the ominous looking clouds, Call it intuition, call it gut feeling, call it the Holy Spirit, likely a combination of those, we have a built-in ability to recognize situations that don't seem right or safe. But there's a bad kind of fear, specifically for Christians, the fear of the unknown, the fear of death, the fear of the future. Those are the kinds of fears that we are simply not supposed to have. Now, that said, we do have those fears. I understand that. We all have them from time to time. But we are to fight against those, and we're to give those to God. Let Him worry about tomorrow. Let Him worry about the future. Let Him worry about our life and our death. Our job is to love God, love our neighbors, and go and tell. What I really want to point out here is the loss of our grip on reality. The world works and makes sense because God created it that way, to work the way it does. Now, if you're a believer in evolution, first, what's wrong with you? Evolution makes no logical, rational, or scientific sense at all. But second, if you believe in evolution, then you can count on nothing in your world. In order for you to believe the world will work tomorrow the way it worked today, that math will work tomorrow the way it worked today, you must borrow from the Bible and created order by God. You have no other option, as evolution has no mechanism to create steady-state, Continuing repeatable order. So, I'm not necessarily going to cite chapter and verse here, but I want you to think of some things that we know. The planets and the stars, which remember are all suns, most of which are larger than our own sun and much, much farther away, they move about in outer space in a predictable pattern. The Bible tells us that God put the lights in the sky to serve as signs and markers of seasons. They couldn't do that if they were just randomly zipping around. The rotation of the Earth, the orbit of the Moon, the gravity on both of them, the vacuum of space, and math are all so constant that we can launch men in rockets into space, even land them on the Moon, and bring them back again and have them return to within feet of what was calculated. We can send radio, television, and cell phone signals around the planet or up to space and back because we understand how frequency works, and they work the same way all the time you're listening to this on something that is either powered by an alternating current or run by a battery running on direct current but you're all using one of the two forms of electricity we have because generating electricity works the same no matter what you do and the way a component uses that electricity works the same all the time blood can be moved from one healthy person to another person that needs that blood, but only if the types are compatible, and that works the same every time. In fact, your blood doesn't just randomly change types. The Earth is at a perfect distance from the sun, so that the hot and cold cycles for just about the entire planet are tolerable by man and beast. The moon is at the perfect distance to cause the oceans to flow from high to low tide without being too little or too much. Every. Single. Time. Speaking of the oceans, I know all the cool kids are big fans of the theory of global warming, but if the oceans didn't work like they do, have done, and will continue to do, acting as massive heat sinks, absorbing heat when the planet has excess, releasing heat when the oceans have more than the air, if it didn't work like this, our planet would swing through extremes of too cold for life to exist, and too hot for life to exist. Need I go on? uh <laughs> What the heck? One more. If our immune system didn't work like it has for 6,000 years, we'd all be dead. Our immune system is designed to take in various invaders, identify them, code them, determine if they're friend or foe, then create an army to fight them if they're not supposed to be there. Those in positions of power have been trying to make us believe for two and a half years, and even more so one and a half years since the pseudo-vax came out, that our system that's arguably statistically worked perfectly for 6,000 years just won't work that way anymore, at least not with this one virus. Why? Well, I'd argue, after I make the case that they have somewhat of an evil ulterior motive, that it's because they believe in evolution. They believe that at any moment, things won't work the way they always have, while at the same time, they're creating a chemical to inject into everyone, whether you want it or not, relying on the fact that things work the same every single time. Now, all that said, In a sin-cursed world, a world that's just walking its way through entropy, a slow decline toward chaos, none of these things work as perfectly as they used to, and as they were designed to. But for everything to work as well and as consistently as they do today, after 6,000 years, I'd say that's not too bad of a design, right? I, or a loved one of mine, may die of COVID. I understand that's possible. If I die, I guarantee it won't be an enjoyable way to go. If one I love dies, I won't be happy about it. But the reason I don't fear the virus, the reason not one person in my family fears the virus, is because we believe in a creator God. We believe that God created everything, that he created everything to work a certain way, and it does, that he is in complete control, that this entire creation is being sustained every millisecond by the sheer will of Jesus And that our exact time of birth, as well as our exact time and cause of death, is already written. And there isn't anything we can do to change it, as God's plan is perfect. Any deviation from His plan, no matter how small, were that possible, would be worse. We aren't afraid of death. I don't think any of us want to go through the process of dying, but we're not afraid of death because we know exactly where we're going the exact moment we blink out of this world. There was a reason. I could calmly, peacefully discuss with my 14-year-old at the very beginning of the pandemic when we were being told that more than 2 million in the United States would die right away that there was a chance either I or her mother could die from this if it's as bad as they were predicting. And I could do this calmly and she could listen calmly and we could discuss it peacefully. So let me wrap this up by saying... If you're someone that walks through life nervous of what's around every corner, scared of what each day will bring, fearful that if this virus didn't get you, the next one definitely will, let me encourage you that first, if you're a Christian, you literally have no reason to fear this life. If you're a Christian that believes in evolution, it's very possible that mixing in a nonsensical, random chance, chaotic worldview into your created, ordered, sovereignly controlled worldview may be causing this lack of assurance. Get online, visit a group like Answers in Genesis, or Creation Ministries International, or Institute for Creation Research, and compare what you're currently being told to believe by, quote, science, with what the Bible and biblical worldview says about the very same evidence. If you're not a Christian, and you find yourself to be fearful, I would argue that it's at least in part, possibly in large part, due to the fact that you're living in a world that you can clearly see as created and ordered but you're denying what you see and know to be true, trusting instead on those that claim to have the answers. But if you probe more than just surface deep, they they literally have no answers to give. This gives you a firm foothold in midair on nothing at all. Let me encourage you to put your faith in Christ. Now, this may not happen all at once, but get a Bible, start reading, take the book of John, take the first handful of chapters in Genesis, Start to understand what the Bible says about who we are, who you are, who Jesus is, what he's done, and the peace, joy, hope, and love available to you if you repent and place your faith in him. This doesn't guarantee a prosperous life or a healthy life or even a happy life, but those are independent of a life of peace, hope, joy, and love. And that previous statement is only able to be understood by those that are born again. To the unsaved, what I just said sounds contradictory and somewhat insane. But I assure you, what I said is absolutely correct. This creation was created by an intelligent, perfect God. It was created with an order, with rules and laws that govern the way it works. We were created by a perfect God to work the way we work. Don't let those that are either driven by agenda or those that deny what they see with their eyes and fear what they refuse to understand, steal your joy and leave a sack of fear in its place, Indiana Jones style. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. So give God thanks for being fearfully and wonderfully made, and let me add, predictably made. As the Congress worked to address the issues that the new nation could and would face, quite obviously the tenuous hold they had on this country relied on the ability to fend off the attempts by other nations to take the land by force. To that end, the Articles of Confederation in multiple places referenced the many aspects of war. Welcome back to the American Genesis. In this episode, we'll be looking at Article 7, 8, and the first paragraph of 9 of the Articles of Confederation. Now, the entire Articles of Confederation document is comprised of just over 3,500 words. Out of those, nearly half are found in Article 9. As such, Article 9 will be broken up over the next few episodes, and this is why we'll be covering the first paragraph only in this episode. So, as we've done before, let's start by reading some of the text. Now, Article 7 is a very short, straight-to-the-point article, and it reads, quote, When land forces are raised by any state for the common defense, all officers of or under the rank of colonel shall be appointed by the legislature of each state respectively by whom such forces shall be raised, or in such manner as such state shall direct, and all vacancies shall be filled up by the state which first made appointment. So the military for the common defense, in other words the United States military, was to be raised by the individual states. The general or generals would be appointed by Congress to oversee the various state armies, but any rank below that, colonel on down, would be appointed by the state. You can continue to see how the central federal government, the Congress, was desperately trying to bring the states together as one united country, but leave as much autonomy as possible to the states. Looking back, we can see how this style of military would be. <laughs> Nearly impossible to unify, but the fact remained, a fighting force from each state that could be called into action to defend this country was absolutely necessary. It just couldn't be a king's army. They couldn't conscript people. That would never fly. They needed the states to feel as if they were still in control, while still reserving the power of national war actions for themselves. A fine line. Moving to Article 8, we read, quote, All charges of war and all other expenses that shall be incurred for the common defense or general welfare, and allowed by the United States in Congress assembled, shall be defrayed out of a common treasury, which shall be supplied by the several states, in proportion to the value of all land within each state, granted to or surveyed for any person, as such land and the buildings and improvements thereon shall be estimated, according to such mode as the United States in Congress assembled, shall, from time to time, direct and appoint. The taxes for paying that proportion shall be laid and levied by the authority and direction of the legislatures of the several States within the time agreed upon by the United States in Congress assembled. Ah taxes everyone's favorite subject. I find this article kind of funny, and the interpretation was probably different then than it is today, but it really sounds like they're walking on eggshells here. Taxes was one of the, shall we say, sticking points with regard to the filthy English crown, and now, now this new government in this new country is saying, yeah, yeah so about that taxes thing. But the way they phrase it is basically, ah, we're going to need money to do some things, and and we're going to need it from you know all y'all, and we'll make it fair based on property, and we'll need it uh, from time to time. I mean, this sounds like a very non-committal, almost apologetic type of article. Now, on a more serious note, although I hate paying taxes as much as the next guy, and clearly our government wastes most of the money they force us to pay them, the reality is taxes are necessary. This is just an inescapable fact. In sermons that tackle governmental issues like taxes, we always jump to Jesus asking for the coin and declaring that you give to Caesars what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, and we interpret that as pay your taxes. This is just earthly treasure anyway, so whatever. And I agree, we are to pay our taxes. I don't like my tax dollars being used for stupid stuff, and I really don't like my tax money being used for immoral purposes, but our options are pretty limited, and we're apparently not smart enough to vote in fiscally conservative people. Back to the Bible, what is rarely brought up unless we're being told to tithe our 10% is the tithe. I've heard messages regarding the tithe from some of those considered to be top theologians of our time. Some believe the tithe is still in effect today, some do not. After evaluating both arguments and the backing evidence, I've fallen on the side that the tithe is no longer mandatory. You may feel differently, but the reason I'm in that camp is because the tithe in the Old Testament was basically their taxes, and it amounted to somewhere from 23 to 30 percent. I've heard a variety of numbers in that range. So even in the Old Testament, early in the Old Testament, as a theocracy, money was needed to sustain the central government, which was comprised of priests and the temple and whatever else. And really, the percentage isn't dramatically different than what we see today as income tax overall, although, granted, we are taxed in about every other way possible these days, but that's a different discussion for a different time. So if the tithe is not in effect, what do I do with giving to the church and to ministerial type of work? Well, although it's not a mandatory thing, I think the onus on us is even greater because it is a heart thing. And personally, I think for most of us, 10% is a great starting point, not mandatory, but a good baseline. And then it's up to each of us individually to give as we're prompted to give in the amount that we believe we should. As long as your conscience is your guide, what you give is between you and God. Now, getting back on track, the Congress recognized that they were going to need funds. They were going to need to get them from the states, and it seems like they were basically putting a toe in the water, testing to see if the states would balk at this. Moving on to Article 9. Quote, "...the United States, in Congress assembled, shall have the sole and exclusive right and power of determining on peace and war, except in the cases mentioned in the sixth article, of sending and receiving ambassadors." Entering into treaties and alliances, provided that no treaty of commerce shall be made, whereby the legislative power of the respective states shall be restrained from imposing such imposts and duties on foreigners as their own people are subjected to, or from prohibiting the exportation or importation of any species of goods or commodities whatsoever." of establishing rules for deciding in all cases what captures on land or water shall be legal, and in what manner prizes taken by land or naval forces in the service of the United States shall be divided or appropriated, of granting letters of marquee and reprisal in times of peace, appointing courts for the trial of piracies and felonies committed on the high seas, and establishing courts for receiving and determining finally appeals in all cases of captures, provided that no member of Congress shall be appointed a judge of any of the said courts. Okay, Article 9 is the big one, at least with regard to federal powers. This article basically outlines the powers the federal government has reserved for itself. We'll get into it in the next episode, but... Wow, I mean, the exacting detail is tremendous, and most of it appears to be done in order to ensure all of the states felt they were not getting their toes stepped on. Now, as for this opening paragraph, again, this is generally geared toward war, but even more so, it's really focused more on piracy. So, just to bullet point them here, the rights Congress reserved for itself in this first paragraph are determining peace and war, except for the specific cases that a state is being overrun with piracy, as outlined in Article 6, Sending and receiving ambassadors, making treaties and alliances as long as it doesn't overstep a state's laws on commerce that are already in the books. Determining what naval action can be taken, captures of other ships, booty allowed to be kept or divided, property seizures in peacetime. And that's essentially what the letters of marquee or reprisal means. And establishing courts to try pirates and other high sea crimes and appeals to property seizure. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems kind of odd to me to think that piracy used to be such a big deal. We generally think of piracy today as Pirates of the Caribbean and Jack Sparrow flamboyantly doing apparently anything he wants to do with very little consequences. Plus, you know, some good yuck yucks along the way. But no, at this time, this was a huge deal. In fact, for literally centuries, the Muslim Barbary pirates were sailing the seas doing exactly what pirates do. Until the colonies declared independence from Great Britain, the Royal Navy protected merchant and other ships sailing through those waters. After our declaration, for, for some reason, Great Britain didn't want to do this for the colonies anymore. I mean, Who knew, right? This is actually what led to the United States creating the Navy. In 1795, we signed a treaty with the Barbary pirates, but were paying a substantial amount of money for passage without having to fear of being attacked. Thomas Jefferson finally had enough of this in 1801 and sent the Marines to Tripoli to fight the Muslim Barbary pirates you've heard the line from the halls of montezuma to the shores of tripoli well this is why the song references tripoli one of the nicknames of the marines even today is leatherneck this was because they wore thick tall leather cuffs or collars around their necks in order to have some defense against the scimitars of the muslim pirates as beheading the infidels was one of the favorite ways of doing battle so Yeah, piracy was a big deal and clearly needed to be fleshed out so as to clearly establish who was responsible for what. In fact, as you read through the articles, and what I think will become clearer over the next few episodes as we finish up our review of the articles, is that although I don't for a second doubt the sincerity and effort made by the Congress at this time, it just feels as if these articles were written with immediacy in mind. They just don't give the feel that they ever could have stood the test of time, which is what happens to nation after nation today. Constant major revisions or complete scrapping of and rewriting of constitutions because they just don't apply anymore. The Congress of the new United States had a daunting task, and they appear to have set up a functional document to address the here and now. But without a more, for lack of a better term, eternal worldview, a country is headed for potential turmoil. Think of it this way. The Israelites were given over 600 laws by God through Moses. They were cumbersome, they were exacting, they were strict, and they addressed the immediate issues affecting the Israelites, their interaction with each other, with other nations, and most importantly, with God. I don't think any of us could argue that today, if we read only those many, many laws, we'd have a somewhat difficult time understanding the point of them all, except for the fact that God said to follow them. And as we know today, living in the New Testament era, those laws were not meant to be permanent, eternal laws. They were designed for a period of time. But the reason they made sense, the reason we can understand the why behind the what of those laws is because God started by giving them the ten eternal laws of which were and are the basis for all biblical law, the Ten Commandments. Why the sacrifices? Because there was to be no other thing put in place of God. Sin is idolatry. Idolatry is sin, and it needed to be atoned for. How could we possibly feel that stoning was an appropriate punishment for an out-of-control son or an adulterer? Was it because they were simply bloodthirsty, caveman-like barbarians? No, it's because we are to honor our father and mother. We are not to commit adultery. All the laws regarding cleanliness are rooted in the fact that God is the most holy being there is, pure and righteous, and we can see that through the first four commandments. And these Ten Commandments, even in the New Covenant, are still in effect today, whereas because we are living in a time of grace, the other laws are no longer applicable. The commandments are what show us who we are and why we need a Savior. Now, Hopefully I've communicated what I'm trying to say adequately enough. doesn't feel like it, but, you know, hopefully. So bringing it back to the articles, as we're starting to see, and as we will see, this gives the feel that it's these 600 laws without the Ten Commandments as the backing argument. It's lacking the eternal truths, the basis and reason why the country should have these laws and band together. The laws were good, but they weren't capable in and of themselves to hold a nation together for the long haul. We'll get into that more as we go, and as we get into the Constitution in a few short weeks, I believe this concept will come more and more into focus. So for now, we'll end this episode of the American Genesis with the start of Article 9. In the next episode, we'll finish with Article 9, and then in the final episode, we'll cover the last few articles and the conclusion. So, I thank you for listening, and I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of the American Genesis. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at LCPodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.